today I'm not going to talk about the thing that I said I was going to talk about last time. And what's more, when I do talk about that thing, I don't know if I will even let you know that this is the thing. So we're just going to move on past that moment. And I am still going to talk about that same thing. But now I just don't want to highlight it. So um, as you were, and you know, feel how you want to feel. There's a line in a Charles Bukowski poem. This incompleteness is all that we have. This incompleteness is all that we have. The kind of incompleteness that I'm going to talk about today is mathematical incompleteness. And I'm just going to very quickly give you uh, a, a little story from the history of math that is uh, a really interesting story to me and was a really important moment in the history of math. This story does not require you to be a fan of math to enjoy it. That's what I believe. I am personally a big fan of math. I like to learn about math. Um, but I don't think it's required for you to enjoy the story. So here we go. And maybe you'll you'll get a new appreciation of math from the story. So in 1900, this is 118 years ago, this guy called David Hilbert, who was a mathematician, he was a very kind of popular, I don't know if popular is the word, he was a celebrated mathematician amongst the mathematicians of his day. He was, you know, successful um, and made many great contributions. There is a thing named after him now, probably the thing that... Uh, that he is most remembered for in the mathematical world called a Hilbert space, which is a certain kind of mathematical space that is a useful idea in um, physics and in quantum mechanics specifically, and I think string theory, I don't know much about that stuff, but very, you know, major contribution, and he made many other major contributions. I mean, that's probably his, his kind of directly mathematical contribution he's most famous for. But he's also very famous for, at the turn of the century in 1900, putting out this, uh, this program of problems that are called the Hilbert Problems. He compiled this list of 23 problems, the most important kind of open questions in mathematics of the day. And it was this, like, program for the 21st century. Like, hey, you know, here we are the dawn of a new century, the final century of this millennium, um, they were starting to get on the train of, of the 21st century. You know, it's 1900, so... Hello, just a quick warning. Every time I say 21st century during this recording, I mean 20th century. I apologize. Please adjust your hearing to that fact. So every time you hear 21st century, translate that to 20th century. Okay. Enjoy. They were starting to get on the train of, of the 21st century. You know, it's 1900, so the last 100 years have been this explosive kind of growth of knowledge, of technology, of populations, of, like, human understanding in every way. It's just been so far that last 100 years, 1800 to 1900, was um, the, the, the most kind of rapid growth of human evolution that had ever been up to that point and so they sat there at the kind of eve of this new century full i imagine full of a certain kind of freshness and optimism right that was a time um 
you know, if you were living in Western Europe at that time, which Hilbert was, um, he was German, full of this kind of like, what did they call it? The the um, the fin de siècle, the end of the century, um, with with this kind of this combination of like anything could happen, and what are we doing here? But this hope and this kind of like stretching. Now, what they didn't know, and we know, is the twenty first century was gonna look at the at the nineteenth century, at what it did, both in terms of like. Um, contributions to humanity and evolution but also in terms of um, kind of catastrophes and disasters like the beginning of in the 19th century you were just starting to get the first um, climate change the first uh, human caused environmental disasters on a large scale you get these like pea soup fogs and you get this um, this this coal smoke and these these kind of things. So you were just starting to get that. There were the the scale of the wars was also increasing in the nineteenth century, like the new technologies, the the rifles and um and like that. And the twentieth century, you know, the twentieth century, like it looked at the nineteenth century and it said, Hold my beer. Right? They didn't know that. They didn't know what was gonna happen in the twenty first century. In the twentieth century. But there they were with all of this hope. And and so he laid out this program, these hundred, these twenty three problems. Like, okay, this is this is the things we as mathematicians need to figure out this at this time. And one of his problems was how to prove that the axioms of arithmetic are consistent. So what that means is, um, all of mathematics is uh, is built on these sets of axioms. These kind of like, well, we're going to assume this, this, and this. And then from, if you give us A, B, and C facts, we can derive all of this stuff. We can derive all of these theorems, which is kind of saying, given these facts, we can prove that X, Y, and Z is true. So, you know, as an example, um, in geometry, an axiom might be that if you have, um, there's only one way to draw a line through a point so that it is parallel with another line, meaning so that it never touches another line so you have one line that goes from infinity to infinity on a plane and then you put a point somewhere else there is exactly one way to draw a line through that point such that it never touches the other point i.e those two lines are parallel Um, that axiom is an axiom of geometry and from that you get a whole bunch of geometry and so similarly in arithmetic so an axiom of arithmetic might be um, when you add two numbers together, it doesn't matter which order you add them in. Maybe that's too high level. In reality, that kind of thing is probably too high level, and the axioms of arithmetic are actually uh, simpler than that, but it's harder to give examples. But that's a kind of an example of the sort of thing an axiom. So if you add 3 to 4, it's the same as adding 4 to 3. Now, there are some kinds of mathematical objects where that's not the case. You add A to B, it's not the same as adding B to A. So Hilbert, one of his problems among the 23, and this was kind of in some ways the most foundational important, he said, let's prove that these, like use them, actually create a mathematical proof that these axioms are consistent so that we can just relax about the foundation of everything that we're doing. Because at first, you know, mathematicians were, were kind of like, they were cutting it loose around that time or even a little earlier. They were just like, ah, we'll just add infinity here and like give me like, an 
infinite supply of these little numbers here, and we'll add them all together, and it's probably just going to work out fine. And they were doing a lot of proofs like that. And so this was in some ways a, an attempt to like tighten things up so that, okay, let's really understand what we're doing here, and let's make sure that this like fundamental axioms are consistent so that we can just relax and know what we're doing going forward. So sounds good. Sounds like a good plan. Let's do that. Um, and many people were on board on that. There was like a huge project in mathematics in general at that time to create these what are called formal axiomatic systems, which are kind of what I'm describing. So you have a set of axioms, and then you have a set of rules of, of how you can prove things from those axioms. And then in theory, you could get a machine. They didn't quite have computers then, but they had to kind of, they were starting to think in those terms a little bit that you could have this mechanical procedure an algorithm, we would call it today, that takes the axioms and can generate theorems or can take a theorem and look at the axioms and can tell you whether that theorem is true or not given those axioms. And so you could turn the whole mathematical project into a kind of this mechanical, this mechanical thing. And then I don't know, I mean, he was kind of, I don't know what his plan was at that point. Like, what if he succeeded? He's a mathematician. Suddenly the machines are, are doing all the math. I don't know if he thought that through. He was just curious about the nature of truth. So this was a project at that time. Everybody's like, great idea. People worked on it, you know, made many developments, fruitful developments, which are still useful today. And then in 1931, this guy Kurt Gödel, an Austrian, he proved that you cannot have a system that can prove its own consistency. So if you want to prove that a certain axiomatic system is consistent, you can only do that from without, outside of that axiomatic system. So you have to go somewhere else and assume a different set of axioms for your proof. You cannot prove that a certain axiomatic system is consistent from within that system. And here's how he did it, and this is a trip. There's a book called Gödel's Proof by Ernest Nagel and James Newman. And I read this book, uh, years ago, and I would say, to the best of my memory, it was years ago that I read it. It does not require any sophisticated math at all, or at least very little. It it kind of you know it mostly deals with multiplying numbers, and if you understand prime numbers and prime factorization, that's going to get you there. As far as I recall, it's a long time ago I read that book. So I would even say like that's a book to dip your toe in if these ideas are kind of interesting to you and you want to go check them out. Gödel's Proof, uh, that's a book to, to check them out because they think that it's, it's actually pretty digestible. Here's how he did it, which is still just a trip to me. And even though I read that book, I don't. it's hard for me to even understand how he did this now, but he definitely did it. And while I was reading the book, it kind of made sense to me, is he created a, an axiomatic system, a formal axiomatic system of the kind that Hilbert was talking about. And then within this system... He created a statement, a theorem, which said, essentially, this theorem is unprovable within this system. He created this theorem within the system, and this is a system that just does arithmetic. It's a very simple system. It just does adding and multiplying. It's not like a computer programming language or like a, it's just like a simple system for doing arithmetic and just inside of that system he was able to construct a theorem a statement which the meaning of which was this theorem is unprovable within this system 
And and so then you are at a, a paradox. Because if you prove it, then it's false. So, so then your system is inconsistent. Your axiomatic system is inconsistent because you've proved something which is false. If you prove this is unprovable within the system, within the system, then there's a contradiction there, right? But if you don't prove it, then it's true because what you said is this this, this theorem is unprovable within the system. If you don't, if you can't prove that, which we've just said, oh well, you can't prove that, then it's true that this theorem is unprovable within the system, which means that there are facts within the system which are true facts which can never be proved. And it turns out all you need is enough math to do arithmetic. You need enough axioms to do basic arithmetic. And from there, you have a system which is so complex that there are truths in it which can never be proved. And this is the from within the system. You have to go outside and go outside to construct another system that you can prove whatever you want to prove about that system. So this is called the Gödel's incompleteness theorem, or one of it. He did two incompleteness theorems. This is one of them. To me, it's one of these like back doors out of some kind of like rigidity. We're released from the inevitability of the mind's model of the world. Because the mind wants to reduce everything and does so beautifully reduce everything to this kind of formal symbolic manipulation and Gödel kind of put the final nail in the coffin of that he said you can't actually there are always going to be truths out there which require an expansion which require dismantling or adding to the thing that you have, you can never get to a final form of like crystalline perfection. Like this mathematics is alive as much as anything is alive. It evolves as much as anything evolves. And to me, that is liberating. Okay, I hope that made sense. Thank you for listening and be well.